Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are joined by two wonderful guests. Our first speaker is Catherine Tobin, the Director of Research and Strategy at TM, a product design and innovation startup. Prior to joining TM this fall, Katie spent over a decade in the intelligence community. She was the Director of the Lateral Innovation Division at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Prior to this role, she spent over four years at the Central Intelligence Agency, creating technology, tools, and experiences to support analysts. She was also an accomplished, I'm, I'm gonna re-say that because uh, I said it in the past tense. She's also an accomplished triathlete and has represented Team USA at World Championship races in Europe and North America. Our second speaker, is Maggie Feldman Pilch, the founder and CEO of Unicorn Strategies, a human capital management firm widely known for its project NatSec Girl Squad, which is an international community of over 40,000 people focused on building diversity in national security and defense. As the leader of NatSec Girl Squad, she is a trusted confidant of women and allies across the national security workforce with a particular focus on women in the military. Prior to Unicorn Strategies, Maggie served at the, con at the conference board and risk cooperative, in addition to serving as the chief of staff to nearly 100 retired senior officers at American Security Project. Katie and Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. So Katie and Maggie, you both have very interesting backgrounds. Before we start our discussion, Perhaps you can walk us through your career journey and tell us some of the defining moments uh, that led you to do this kind of work. Sure. When I was in high school, when people asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, I really didn't know. So I'd always punt and say I wanted to be an international moment of mystery. And, uh, and you know, there are a lot of different ways to take that. And so people would kind of laugh nervously and say, okay, but no, really, what does that mean? And so um, I was determined to figure that out. And uh, so it started when I was a college sophomore spending a year in Munich, Germany. And I had to get more pages added to my passport. And I walked into the consulate there. And it was actually really nice. Like people were speaking English, didn't smell like smoke. Um, it felt American and patriotic. And I really missed that. And so I asked if they needed an intern. And they said, sure. And so that began my career. I started working at the consulate. I got my security clearance. I was able to translate that into another internship at our embassy in Vienna, Austria for two summers, which was also fantastic. Went to grad school. I learned about how the, um, the private sector is also supporting um, US national security via an internship at a big consulting company. Then I transitioned to being a government employee at the office of the director of national intelligence. Whereas you mentioned, I was there for a few years. I was working on Afghanistan and Pakistan. So really, you know, it was in the news every day. It was amazing. And then spent some time at CIA trying to figure out creative ways to solve problems for analysts. And then I realized, okay, time to go back to ODNI. What do I want to do? And I created a job for myself. Um, I uh, wrote a paper about how ODNI should be promoting innovation across the intelligence community. Sent it around to anyone who would listen, and they did. And I got that job and I was there for just over two years. 
So throughout this career, it was definitely international. I got to travel all over the world, uh, a bit of mystery because it was the intelligence community. And um, I got to solve some really cool problems and meet fantastic people and serve my country, which was great. And now for the past uh, month and a half, I've been at TM, which is a startup, which means I get to solve new problems and really get my hands dirty and, uh, and work on all aspects of them where the sky is the limit. So um, throughout the career, it's been fantastic. And what's the, the common theme throughout, there is a common theme, I promise, is that none of the jobs existed before I got there. They were all new. They were all ones that I asked for. And so this is why I'm so excited to talk today about diversity and talent and the future of the workforce, because I think my experience could be a useful model for other people. That's great. I'm looking, really looking forward to that. Maggie? So, you know, my uh, experience so far has been pretty different from Katie's. Um, I sort of had a plan in college um, in that I was pretty specifically interested in um, human rights in the fashion industry. And I was like, I'm going to go work in corporate social responsibility for luxury consumer goods, right? Like that was my plan. I uh, worked in fashion showrooms in the summers. Um, I worked at the conference board um, for a period of time. I was a fellow there um, working on corporate social responsibility. Um, and my plan was my senior year of college. Um, I, I made my own major, um, which in retrospect probably told me more than I realized right at the time. I went to Wesleyan University, which is in Middletown, Connecticut, and is not really known for um, rigidity. So the fact that I felt the need to make my own major at a school that like doesn't really require you to have a major is ridiculous. Um, but so I made my own major. It was a, a cross between kind of theoretical economics and um, I also moonlight as an opera singer, but that's a whole other story. Um, and so my senior year, I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to business school and I'm going to go into corporate social responsibility. Um, and the universe had other plans for me. Um, I ended up getting a pretty significant concussion in October of my senior year of college um, and needed to write a thesis to complete the requirements for this major I had made up um, and realized I could not write and research the thesis and also apply to business school. So I did the thing you're really not supposed to do when you have a concussion, which is I watched the entirety of the West Wing um, and found that, huh, maybe that looked pretty cool. Um, and decided that I wanted to be Leo McGarry and moved to Washington, um, not quite a full 72 hours after finishing undergrad um, to start an internship at American Security Project where I stayed for several years um, with really no plan um, and no previous academic experience that was at all relevant um, and really just having seen the West Wing and it was me and my pet hedgehog, and here we were. Um, and so I started out at ASP, and I was one of, you know, like 15 interns <laughs> that they had that summer. And everybody was sort of doing the same thing, right? Which is, for those familiar with kind of the DC, especially think tank intern scene, it's you go to events and you write about them. You go to events and you write about them. Um, and I'm not a bad writer by any means, but I just didn't care that much, to be totally honest. Um, and I remember I was sitting next to um, a colleague who had both an undergraduate and graduate degree in water security. And I was like, that is so very specific and not at all me. Um, and so everyone was writing these blog posts. And it became pretty clear to me that 
no one really reads them. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to say that. Um, but pe most people don't read the blog post, right? So um, at the time, the CEO, um, still the CEO, is a retired Marine Corps general, um, didn't have an assistant. And I was unpaid labor. And so I kind of like teetered into his office and was like, hello, would you like me to answer your phones? Um, and I think he was probably like equal parts um, trying to get rid of me and like, she's here. I don't have anyone answering my phone. Why not? Um, and so I started doing that. And what I found um, was that I really loved it. Not so much the answering the phone. I mean, I like answering the phone. It's fine. Um, but I really loved working with him and for him. And um, with the other retired senior members of the military that were in the board and their consensus for American security and sort of similar to Katie, I guess, is that um, it wasn't a job that really existed at the time, but I made my own job. And um, they were quite clear with me about the expectations and it worked well for me and my personality. Um, there were not managers, right? And I'm air quoting for those that can't see, but very much leaders. And I'm not someone who is managed well, but um, if you give me a directive and tell me, go to this place as efficiently and honestly and with as much enthusiasm as possible and report back, I will do that um, with boundless energy and joy. And that's essentially what happened. Um, you know, I was given some very clear uh, expectations. They were, you know, try hard. If you're going to do something, they said, leave a Maggie shaped cutout in the wall. Um, be honest. And if you mess up, that's okay, just own it. Um, and so through that, that experience, I, I got to do a number of things that in retrospect, um, you know, can only happen in America, <laughs> can only happen in Washington, DC. Again, I didn't have any relevant academic experience or professional experience, really, but um, got to lead a track two dialogue to Havana, Cuba to meet with the Ministry of Interior, um, built my own podcast series there, ran a fellowship, um, and really loved every minute of it um, and was also pushed pretty hard to go to graduate school because I was and remain a relatively young woman um, who's not in the military. And they're like, you need to get a graduate degree. Otherwise, you know, the patriarchy, let's just say. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I went to graduate school, continued working. And, and uh, it was really there that NatSec Girl Squad or the beginnings of NatSec Girl Squad was born. Um, and my job now is nothing what I thought I would be doing at this stage. Katie hears me say this all the time. If you had said to me that at uh, 28, um, I would be working for myself and like trying to figure this whole thing out, I would have laughed at you. Um, I'm As much as I wanted to do corporate social responsibility, um, I've always been a really service-driven person. And um, I was not looking to really go out on my own, just no matter how much I love Fleetwood Mac. Um, and this is where I am and my life is not what I expected it to be. And I get to travel a lot or I did get to travel a lot. Nobody's traveling right now. Um, and I get to think about so many different problems every day. Um, and it's great. It's chaos, but it's great. <laughs> no, that's, that's fascinating. So, so tell us uh, about Natsak Girl Squad. How, you know, how did it come about? And what does the organization do? Yeah, so totally fair question. So it, it, it came about, as I mentioned, you know, I had this incredible job at American Security Project with these fabulous bosses and mentors and sponsors who really even now still mean the world to me. Um, 
but there were some pretty crucial differences between them and me, and they were the first to notice them, right? Um, it's a pretty steep age difference. It's like 40 years. Um, and they're all men. They've also all been in the military. Um, and those three things played a really big role in their professional development, right? So when you're in the military, you're on this glide path, you, you make some decisions, but they're sort of made for you. You're moving through a space designed for and by white men, and you are a white man, all of these things. Um, and I knew pretty clearly, pretty much the second I started working at ASP, I think I made it two days before I gave up on business school and was like, nope, this is going to be it. Like, this is my life now. And I knew that I didn't want to be a diplomat because I'd be terrible at it. I didn't want to work in development. Um, and I, I didn't want to do research. Um, and I didn't enjoy writing reports. Um, and it's really great to know those things about yourself. But it doesn't really tell you what you do want to do. And so as much as I would talk to them, they were like, look, there's a limit to our knowledge because we all joined the military at 18 and we don't really know what's out there in the big wide world. And that's sort of why we work with you because you're a regular person and you should know these things. Um, so I started reaching out to a number of nonprofit organizations who do really important and impressive work, mostly for women in foreign policy and saying like, hey, does anyone know of any formal mentorship programs that I could be a part of. I don't currently work in government. I'm not in the military. Here's the category of things I don't want to do. Um, and pretty quickly, like 250 women wrote back to me saying, no, we've not heard of anything. But if you find something, can you let us know? Because we're also looking. Um, and so I put them all into a Google group. And that is how NatSec Girl Squad started. Um, that Google group listserv of just really informal information sharing, like, hey, I'm going to this event. I don't know anyone, will someone sit with me? Or I know about this job or this internship, or I'm thinking about grad school, really just like informal information sharing. And it went on like that for about a year and a half. Um, and I was even more now than I am um, trying to figure out what my place in relationship to this listserv was how public did I want to be? Um, and I was pushed to kind of say like, Hey, I'm going to be at this bar that's sadly now defunct satellite room, um, a DC classic behind the nine 30 club. Um, I'll be there tomorrow night, you know, at around six after work, if anyone wants to come and get a drink, um, you're welcome to, if no one comes, no harm, no foul. And like 200 women showed up. So it turned out there were a lot of them. <laughs> um, and it's really, really grown since then. Um, and as you mentioned in the intro, um, I run a company called Unicorn Strategies. And really what we are focused on is this idea that competent diversity and national security and defense is not a warm fuzzy. It's not about window dressing. It's not about like making everybody feel great, though that's nice. Um, for me, <laughs> at least, and for our company, it's about lethality. It's about readiness. It's about um, building the force we need for now and later. And so Unicorn Strategies right, is, is this company that does this work and, and works um, with private sector, with, with civil society, with government to really think about this problem in different ways. And NatSec Girl Squad has grown into an example, a project um, of what we think the future should look like when it comes to how do we recruit, retain, promote, and support the force we need. Um, so it's a really long-winded answer, but... So, so Maggie, um, generally when we think of uh, diversity, the argument is 
equity, right? Sure, which is equity. great. Morality but, is but, wonderful. But, but you are, you're, you're providing a different argument here. You're, you're providing yeah. an argument of readiness. So how, walk us through that argument. Sure. This is my favorite activity. So thank you for asking me. Um, and it, and I care a lot about it. So anytime that I'm feeling a little stressed out, it's actually really helpful for me to think through this because it, it reinvigorates me about like, why do I do what I do? Um, and there are different ways to think about this. Some of them are a little bit more tongue in cheek than others, but oh well. Um, so something I, I say pretty frequently is that uh, the PLA uh, will always have more ethnic Han Chinese men in it then we will have Chinese American men in our army. There's nothing we can do about that. However, we will also always have more black women in our military than they will. So if it's an inherent difference, I'm interested in it being an advantage, right? I, I'm a really competitive person. I have a quadrillion siblings um, and I don't like to lose and I don't like being second. And on top of that, I really love America. So I would like for America to win. <laughs> and what does winning mean? It means, you know, uh, the morality and the equity that you talk about as part of um, a really commonly heard argument for diversity, it's certainly part of that, but I wanna be the best. And if this is our community, this is our country, this is who we have, I'm not interested in building something that will only enable us to really pull from a tiny fraction of our community, of our country. And we call that PMS, pale, male, and stale. Um, and some of, you know, kind of the issues that we, we look at are things like, what does it mean when a system is built for and by a group of people, right? Like, what are the impacts of that? So I think really to answer your question, there's kind of two sides to this that are particularly relevant. One, um, a great example that we talk about quite a bit um, is the FBI Academy for Special Agent Candidates at Quantico. Every candidate is required to uh, certify on a service weapon, right? And that service weapon has a standardized grip. That grip is standardized to the average width and like grip strength and width of a man's hand. So if you're a woman, and statistically speaking, your hand is likely smaller, but you're being forced to qualify on something that was made for somebody else's hand, and it's therefore easier for them, right? They have, they have an advantage over you. Um, I'm not into that. <laughs> the other part of it is really changing this idea of it's not that anyone who is outside of the default, right, this pale, male, and stale, we say stale because you can't do anything about how you were born, right? If you're a white guy and you were born a white guy, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. You have full control over whether or not the fact you're stale, right? That is completely up for debate. Um, if you are that, the world is built for you, right? So it's not necessarily that women or people of color, or God forbid, women of color need something special and different, right? It's that the whole world has been built for a special and different population. So it's not about um, how do you give somebody else more so that they can achieve the same? It's how do we actually think about equity? What does equity really mean? That's a wonderful answer. Okay. I really like it. <laughs> and actually, if I can build on that, and this is part of the reason why I'm so glad we're on the show together, is um, design thinking is all about that, right? So what I'm doing is trying to make sure that we're solving problems for actual people. 
And the white male should not be the default. The white male isn't even the um, majority in the United States, right? So who are we actually trying to solve problems for? It's not just one size of person or mindset of person or description of a person. It's, it's a whole lot of people. And so the first step in human-centered design, which is the technique that I use, is um, really understanding who has the problem, what are they trying to do, what are the barriers that they have, whether that's a policy or you know societal expectations or um, you know financial or just like a physical grip strength, like you mentioned, Maggie. So what, what's going on? How can we try to fix that? And then how can we creatively um, come up with solutions that meet those needs? And um, the possibilities are endless, but that's why I'm so um, such an advocate for diversity because understanding that we are working for people, we're not solving things just for ourselves. The world does not revolve around us. So um, what are people really trying to do and how can we be creative? America's very creative um, and creating better outcomes for more people. So Katie, you recently made a move from the government to the private sector. Mm -hmm. Tell us, uh, what are some of the challenges for such a move? It was, uh, it was like coming out of a long-term relationship, I guess. Um, it was a very, very amicable, break, amicable breakup. Um, I had a wonderful time in government, but I also knew that after over 10 years, I wanted to see what else was out there and how could I challenge myself in new ways. Um, because the thing about innovation is it has to be new and used and useful for mission, right? And so if I were just staying in my bubble, I'm worried about not being new anymore, about missing out on new ideas or new influences or getting to new, use new technologies um, that maybe weren't quite allowed inside the firewall yet. So I thought, okay, I wanna, I wanna mix things up. I wanna go out there, but I wanted to still be tied to mission. And so that made things challenging because you know the private sector, there are so many, so many opportunities out there, but how do you make sure that you're still being true to yourself? And so I really wanted to still serve the American people. And, um, and TM met the mark, right? So the, all the projects, whether they're for the private sector or the public sector, all have a, um, like a social bent to them, right? So we're trying to improve health outcomes for people. Uh, we're trying to help the military visualize data so that they can keep us safe or track the spread of COVID, or we're helping veterans apply for disability benefits faster, right? Like these are all really good things and like good problems to solve. And I'm very motivated to do that. Uh, but the challenge with leaving the intelligence community is um, all of my world was, was behind a firewall, was behind a, a vault door, right? So how do you explain your value to someone in the outside? Um, because that's the thing about having a non-traditional career and always creating my own opportunities. It's not like I could point to a very standard job description and say, that's me. I do all of the things that the person does, right? So I had to think about how do I describe the problems that I solve in a way that I'm allowed to? And so um, luckily I had um, blogged on um, some public platforms. I've been interviewed by some podcasts. I lead some public facing groups. And so I was able to invite TM to explore my, my kind of non-traditional portfolio that way to understand the problems that I'd like to solve and the value that I bring. And um, you know, it was a good sign, I guess, that they were very uh, into that and willing to think beyond the very traditional uh, portfolio. So that also gave me a, a good feeling that I was going to the right place. And uh, it's definitely been a learning curve for the past few weeks. So not only just using new and different technology, um, adjusting to people working on the West Coast, 
it's kind of fun. Um, and uh, every problem, like every every project I'm on, the mandate is, okay, go do it. Instead of, well, find whose lane it is and who's the subject matter expert. And, you know, expertise is, is wonderful. And the government has so much deep expertise and I don't want to knock that. But when you're in a small company, you have to kind of figure things out on your own. So I've uh, tapped into my, my scrappiness and it's, it's really fun. I've been researching so many different things and every day is an adventure. And I really like that. I don't know necessarily what I'll be doing when I wake up. And, uh, and that's, that's a really fun place to be in. So you, you, your position was uh, doing innovation in the intelligence community. So, so that's a pretty marketable background, I would say, for the private sector. What, what about others who, who may not be conversant with technology and innovation who are trying to make that same move into the private sector? What are, what are some of the hurdles that they are facing or they may face? It's, it, everyone has unique challenges, but I think you can also figure it out. Um, no matter what it is, you have a value. And so maybe if you are an analyst, you're really good at research and you know who has the right information and what's trustworthy, and you can figure out um, if something is, is you know, false or misleading, um, you can write. Analysts are really good writers, really, really good writers and editors. Or maybe if you come from a more operational background, um, you can recruit people. You know how to figure out what makes them tick, how to make an argument appealing to them, how to um, really uh, you know, understand what their hopes and dreams are and how can you accomplish that. So all of these things translate to the private sector. It's just a matter of figuring out you know, what types of skills are you using, maybe for different objectives, or um, what types of problems are you trying to solve. And this is actually a way that I like to um, coach and mentor uh, more junior professionals is thinking about what problems do you like to solve as opposed to do you want to be an analyst or a, um, or a consultant, right? So rather than thinking of a title, you don't really know what, what a consultant does until you do it. I was a consultant, still not entirely sure because um, it's so varied, but think about what problems do you want to solve? Are you trying to figure out what is the truth? Are you trying to figure out what is the realm of the possible? Are you trying to help people reach their fullest potential? Um, and those can go in a, in a wide variety of different ways. Um, so I would encourage people to really think about like, the problems that they're solving and then just practice explaining it to people and pitching themselves again and again. So have lots of coffee dates, have virtual coffee dates at this point, um, and try to explain that the value that you bring and see what resonates and see if you get the blank stare or see if you get, oh, oh, we could totally use that. And then you know you're on the right track. So let's let's uh, take a macro view on diversity. When we think of the this, this problem around diversity in the workforce, what do you think the some of the issues are, and uh, and where do we need to go? You want to jump in, Maggie? My whole brain is just like, <laughs> and I forget oh no one can gosh. see me. Um, I mean. There, so I think the first thing I say is like, there are a lot of problems. Um, however, that's not how my brain processes information. I see um, opportunities, I guess it's like the, the cheesy way of putting it. Um, in some ways, I would say like, there's very little we are doing right. The upside to that is like so much potential, right? Like can't get too much worse in some ways. Um, and it's a mixed 
back. I mean, this isn't really your question, but I promise I'll get there. It, you know, there are moments where um, the tactical, the individual um, change that I see, one person gets in, one person gets a promotion, right? Where I'm like, oh, it's possible, it can happen. And then when I zoom out and see the macro, there are some really significant and from my perspective, entirely unnecessary barriers, right? Um, if someone said to me, pick two things that would fundamentally like completely overhaul how federal government accesses talent, right? So not even thinking about what do we do once you get there, but we're talking about the recruiting part. The two things, I mean, there's like 10, but my top two, security clearance reform, which I've got a whole thing on and we can go there. And this idea, particularly in the federal government, particularly in the IC, but really across the national security apparatus, that it's completely acceptable, if not appropriate, for people to apply more than once. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for a number of reasons. As a taxpayer, it irritates the hell out of me, right? Because like that means your process is inefficient. If you don't get the person that you're going to end up hiring the first time, because they didn't make it through from your like ridiculous hoops, that's not good. But also, generally speaking, who are people who are more likely to come back a second time after someone tells them no? Straight Christian white men. What is the best way to completely undermine anybody who is not part of that PMS bucket, right? Like if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, any of these things, like if the federal government tells you no, if the CIA tells you no, you really think you're gonna come back and apply again? No, that's absurd. And the idea that, um, well, you're supposed to go through it multiple times, right? That's how you show you're interested. That's how you know what the process is. That's how you get through it. That's silly and it's wasteful. Um, and then the security clearance piece, you know, the fact that they, it, not everybody should have a clearance, right? And not everybody that currently has a clearance should have one or needs one. And by that, I mean, not everything needs to be classified. And there are people who shouldn't be cleared that are. That aside, you need a clearance to do a lot of work, at least in the current system. And it is so expensive and so difficult to get in that pipeline that unless you were an intern who knew at 18, like Katie, that this is what you wanted to do, for someone to sponsor you, it's really few and far between. You might, like the federal government is your best uh, chance of being sponsored and coming in at an entry level and those jobs are incredibly competitive. And particularly now, if you've got a master's degree or, or your undergraduate degree, the starting salary for many of those jobs as compared to uh, student loan debt do not match, right? It's a real problem. Um, and that creates a, a, some challenges there that are, that is a whole other podcast and probably a series of books. So if we're talking about what are the two things, like if someone asked me, what are the two things that are getting in the way of just the recruiting part? right? Not even thinking about the retention and the support part, which I do genuinely think that if you recruit, if you're retaining people, your recruiting takes care of itself. Um, but just like those beginning pipeline issues, it's security clearance reform. And um, it's how we think about the process. You should be able to pull the person you want the first time. And if they're not getting through the first time, but they get through the second time, and the only thing that's different about them is that now they've done it once, there's something wrong with your process. There's nothing wrong with them. So Katie, you, you, you've been in that world for a long time. What is your perspective? 
Uh, I think it's fascinating to hear what Maggie said, to hear that perspective from the outside, because I'm so fortunate, right? So it wasn't 18, it was 19, 19 I knew what I was doing, right? And got my first clearance, but, um, and I got in the first time, right? So I'm very lucky, um, but I'm also trying to use that um, privilege and pay it forward. And so something that I participated in when I was in the intelligence community and am now doing um, in, a, in a different way at TM is virtual internships. And so this is a great way to bring in people who don't have to relocate to DC. Not that anyone's relocating to DC right now, but um, we did. We were very purposeful for our outreach. So on the government side, it's a program uh, called the Virtual Student Federal Service, vsfs.state.gov. Going to put in a plug for them. Um, it's amazing. It's free for everyone to participate. It's government-wide. The intelligence community participates. Um, and so it's a way for students from across the country to, um, to apply for um, virtual internships. So they're working up to 10 hours a week for the whole school year. They can get college credit. And, um, and so we were very purposeful for our outreach to um, make sure that the advertisement went to um, minority serving institutions. So historically black colleges and, colleges and universities, um, other schools with which um, the IC has a partnership. And we did outreach sessions, we did virtual Q and A's. We talked about um, how the, we talked about the attitudes that we were looking for, as opposed to you must have these skills. Um, because in talking to students, especially women and students of color, they were um, often nervous about, well, I don't know if I, I only get some of the qualifications, right? I don't know if I should apply. And we wanted to say, yes, if this, if this appeals to you, if this problem brings you joy and you want to solve it, we want you. Right? So it does not matter if you are only a freshman. It does not matter if this is your first internship. We want your attitude. We want your enthusiasm. We want your creativity. And as a result, we had amazing interns and really diverse perspectives. Some people, this was their fifth internship. Some people, it was their first internship. And, um, and so they brought different perspectives. They needed to solve problems in different ways. They questioned our assumptions so much right and so it was really fun to see what they picked up on and um they how they challenged us about when we were explaining projects to them or the way the government works and always asking why which as an innovator you should always be asking why right and so it was really good to uh to kind of keep us honest um and then even though i'm no longer in government we're still doing that with tm doing virtual internships um, working with the university here in virginia they're helping us um, pick the best interns, um, also providing mentorship on that side. So it's really a low risk way for us to do it because we know that the interns are, are not gonna disappear on us because there's, uh, there's their school is supporting them. And then we're getting to um, experience all the different expertise that, that the students bring. And um, you know the challenge is we can't sponsor the, the clearance. You know, as Maggie said, that is still a really tough nut to crack. But hopefully through the internship, whether that's from the government side or on the private sector side, they get a window into what it looks like on the inside. So they know more specifically what they want to do. So the IC sounds like a big monolith. It's a big black box, right? I mean, you have some movies, helpful. I must admit, I applied because of Alias. Um, but, you know, that's, that's not every agency. That's not every profession. Um, so, you know, you, you talk to real people and as a mentor, my job is to introduce them to people all across the community. So you want to learn more about forensic science? Okay, I will find that person. You want to learn about data science? I will get you that person. And so that way, when the intern does hopefully apply, at least they can be a bit more specific in what they're looking to do. They'll know that the system is uh, challenged and that it's not their fault. 
So if they do have to apply multiple times, they know it's nothing personal. It is not ideal for sure. And the intelligence community is working on it. You talked to some of my former colleagues a few weeks ago. Um, so, so they're working on it. But in the meantime, at least we can prepare the students and know that, that we do want them we're working on the system, but in the meantime, please, uh, please bear with us. Please keep applying, um, and we will get it eventually. Great. So I want to uh, take a moment to in, uh, invite my colleague, Adam Wood, to come into the discussion. Hey, Katie. Hey, Maggie. Hello. 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 All right. Um, Katie, all right. So... International Woman of Mystery. Let's talk about something that's awesome. Um, one of the things that I think TM is phenomenal at is creating clarity uh, for others by um, identifying who you are to your coworkers, which also means that you've, you've got to know yourself. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I am not at all a morning person because of my concussion history. So I need nine hours of sleep, basically. Um, or I'm not pleasant. And I apologize for that defect, but it's, it's the reality. On the other hand, as much as I love food, I don't really need it for about 16 to 18 hours. But when I need to function, I need it to function. Um, communications, similar, right? We all have our preferences. So despite being an adequate writer, I've realized been told <laughs> that I'm not a great texter. So calls voice to voice are preferred to kind of spare the other person. Um, you made a mention that TM um, does something that I, I consider pretty innovative, but it's, it's kind of common sense writing these types of details uh, on a whiteboard so that people can better understand one another. So I wanted to ask both you and Maggie um, one, you know, who are you relative to the TM model? And do you think that more companies could benefit by employing this methodology to improve the ease of communications and from a human-centered design perspective? Um, what can the government do to innovate models like this for its workforce? Great, well, starting from, from the beginning, um, the model, I first learned about it when I was in the government actually. And so in our innovation classes, we brought people together from all over the intelligence community and said, hey, for this week, you're going to work together to solve one of uh, our toughest problems and learn about human-centered design while you do it. No pressure. Here's a useful tool. And it was called a teaming template. And so it was a way for each team to figure out who they are, both uh, you know, what the individuals bring to the team, and then as a team, how do they function? So the first part is individual, and it's kind of like you mentioned, who are you? How do you work, right? And so it starts with, um, what do you bring? What are your gifts? And that's not just the, your job description. It's things like, I have a really big network. I have a huge professional network. Um, and in my case, I say, I'm a triathlete. So I'm used to working really hard at all hours of the day and night. And um, I have long time to think while I'm staring at the blue line, the bottom of the pool. Um, but then also, what are your gifts? What do you need from the team? And so, um, for example, I'm really good at getting excited about ideas, but I need someone to be that wet blanket to say, hey, you know, that's not exactly legal or that's not politically a good idea, right? So I need someone to, to reel me in a bit. And then the notes. So how should people work best with you? And so that might be a time zone thing, a morning versus afternoon. You mentioned food. I need the food. I need lots of food. Well, it's like I'm really cranky. 
Um, and, you know, text versus uh, just doing with emoji and meme, I guess you could say. Um, and so just like, what are, what are notes for, for current dating? And so go through that each person, so you figure that out. And then also as a team, how do you want to function? How do you make decisions? Is it a vote? Is it um, something a coin? Is it, are you looking for consensus? Is it the person, you know, the president who, who makes all decisions, right? So how do you want to make decisions as a group? And then um, what are your rituals? So for TM, for example, every Monday we have a call where we um, kick off with each person shares one personal thing going on in their life. So like, what did you do over the weekend? And then one professional thing. So what is your, your big goal for the week? That's a nice ritual to get the week started. Um, and then also just what are your team's values? Um, how do you function? And so you know, for, for all of my teams, diversity inclusion, big value, always, always an advocate. Um, being user focused, um, being you know action oriented, those are also common core values. So you have all of this ensconced on a teaming template, and you put it up on the whiteboard or the wall or your desktop pattern. I've never seen anyone actually get a tattoo, though I always offer that. And um, and so it's a great way to just solidify who you are. And when new people join in, they can get a sense of the team, and then um, add to it and modify as needed. So enough about me, Maggie. What's on your teaming template? <laughs> I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about this stuff. And, you know, I've never taken a human centered design class. I've never like a lot of the stuff that I like bop around talking about. I have no idea why I know it. It's just in there um, for better or for worse. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm right. Right. It just like, it, I, I mentioned very briefly, I have in, like a lot of siblings. Right. And so one of the ways that I realized from very young that was an absolute minimum requirement to be successful um, in my family, and by successful, I meant like function, I needed to know myself and I needed to know my team, my siblings, right? So like, I know myself really well, and I'm also really good at reading other people in ways that they're not necessarily, right? Because again, too many siblings. So, you know, you talk about, are you a morning person or not? Um, I am somebody that when I wake up, whenever I wake up, whether it's really early or not really early, um, though I prefer it to be on the early side, I'm not ready to engage with the world for a while. And by that, I mean, I like my perfect day, I wake up, I don't have anything to do for a while. And so I go outside with my dog for an hour and a half or two hours, and I will do emails or social media on my phone and walk my dog and like wake up and I do like my best thinking and I plot out my day, right? Um, I am not a natural manager. I, I mentioned I don't love to be managed and me managing other people is very difficult for me. But one thing I do know is that I, I process out instead of in, like I balance, right? Like I need to process internally and externally. So I do my best work when there's one person I can process to, and they are better at kind of delegating out. I get really overwhelmed, um, or I can get really overwhelmed if I'm the direct manager for a lot of different people, because I, I found, I mean, I'm, this is something I'm learning about myself in such uh, detail right now, um, that the things that are really important to me are really important to me. It doesn't mean that they're actually important. It just means that they're important to me, right? Like those are different. <laughs> um, and, and being able, like sometimes you need someone from the outside to kind of like 
eh, are you just like, I have this thing about font, font must have feet. I know Katie has heard me say this, like in a variety of contexts. I don't know why I feel that way, but it's really significant for me. Um, and sometimes font can't have feet and I just have to like, and be okay with it. Um, I'm also a creature of habit, which tends to surprise some people because I thrive in chaos. And it seems like those two things would really contradict each other. But my like perfect situation is being in the center of the hurricane, right? I want the chaos going on all around me, but none of it is touching me. And there's kind of like, and I can see, I can see the whole board um, and nothing is kind of sticking in and messing with it. Um, and then the other thing that I, I've found, um, I need counterbalances. So um, I have a whole other music life that's really important to me. And then in the last kind of year and a half, two years, um, running has become really important to me. Like I need, if I don't run every day, especially during COVID, um, it's not good. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I am, I, my anxiety, everything. It's like, I need a place to clear my head and I'm, and um, I'm a lot of energy and I'm incredibly intense and very kinetic and I need a way to get it out. And so if I don't have that, um, it's not good for anyone involved. Um, and I guess the other half of kind of your question is like knowing yourself and then what does that mean in the big wide world? Um, you know, I look at my friends like Katie who have had the experience that I swear on my life, I really think I want, right? To like be a part of something bigger where it's not like I don't, I get to make decisions but like, if I don't do things, nothing happens with the unicorn strategies, right? Because like, it's me. <laughs> um, and, and there's a sense of stability there that I for sure crave. Um, and I'm, I learn a lot by doing now, right? Like I'm managing a team so much bigger than I ever thought I would be at this stage in my life with really no previous managing down experience. And so I have to rely on hearing from people like Katie and others, like what works, what doesn't. Um, and I'm learning to like, it's okay to not like doing something, right? Like I thought the reason I didn't like managing was because I was bad at it. It turns out I'm actually pretty good at it. I just don't like it. And that's totally fine. And so if I can be the strategic leader and visionary, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and even especially as a woman and as a young woman that gets really murky um and there's nothing you can be like incredibly kind and incredibly ambitious and that is, those are not mutually exclusive and they shouldn't be Absolutely. So, kind of a sideways answer sorry no no i <laughs> think that you know based off of you know your your experience with you know starting with a family you're a natural elicitation expert yeah. <laughs> for better or worse, right? <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse. We'll, we'll call for better. Um, and, you know, you, you prefer your autonomy because that is what you prefer. And that's okay. Right. Um, you know, uh, and, and I think that a lot of us, at least I, I think that, you know, some of us on this line and, and, and when this goes out, we, we can uh, agree that, you know, running and, and physical activity especially during these times is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, and it also, it, it, you know, is a direct reflection and correlates to, um, you know, your, your sleep and mental health and well-being. So yeah. all those things are incredibly important. Um, 
So I wanted to talk more with you, Maggie, about hedgehogs. I'm kidding. Um, Wait, did you do you know about? Oh, I mentioned mentioned it earlier. earlier. My my R.I.P. Matzo ball. R.I.P. <laughs> she was a good girl. She was great. Yeah, my hedgehog was named Matzo ball. We called her Snooks. She exclusively ate wild, like organic wild blackberries and uh, white meat chicken. This isn't. I know that's not what you really wanted to ask me about, but I just I really loved her. She was great. Fabulous pet. Um, incredibly temperature sensitive. Yeah. 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 A lot happening there. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you know, diving, because you said something uh, when you were talking about, um, you know, when you'd had a concussion and then you Mm -hmm. were, uh, you know, preparing to write your thesis. Um, So you picked up your hedgehog and you were, you're very passionate um, about CSR. And yeah, I'd argue that one of the things that you were doing incredibly well um, right now is that you're coupling corporate social responsibility and intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, in your current work with uh, NatSec Girl Squad. So in your experience, what could the government be doing better relative to addressing CSR, the CSR aspect in the ISR? within the federal government and maybe specifically within the IC? So I think it's hard to pick really specific kind of tactical, you can tell I was raised thoroughly in the Marine Corps, right? Like um, there's like the little specific things you can do, but for me, it's really like a mindset shift. I think the most healthful thing we can do is stop assuming we know what it is that people want and need or that it's really hard to figure out. People ask me all the time, they're like, how is it that you know, like you do a thing for Netflix Girl Squad and there's this incredible adoption rate. And I'm like, yeah, it's not that hard. You ask them like, ah, mind blowing, right? It's really fascinating, right? Like if you ask people what it is that they want or need, they will answer you. They may not answer you in the way that they think they're answering you, but they're still answering you, right? And I definitely think a, a big part of what I do now is I get a constant stream of individual pieces of information all day, every day, right? Like it, I'm a better person for learning about the do not disturb function on my cell phone because it's just nonstop. And I have an Apple watch that I love and it's great for running but I can't wear it during the day because it's like all the time. And I'm not savvy enough to figure out how to turn the notifications off, just to be honest. Um, But they don't get to see what each of them are saying, right? To one another. I can see the whole board. And so when someone is having a very specific problem, you know, over there, and someone else is having a seemingly unrelated problem, but coming from the same underlying issue over there, I can help them each individually solve that individual problem and also see what is it pointing to, right? Um, and I, I really do think, um, you know, I mentioned I went to Wesleyan University, which is, of course, where Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale went, and they are quite well known for this tiny musical called Hamilton. Um, and I love them, and I love the show, and blah, blah, blah. Um, this hurricane analogy metaphor image is one that I used long before them um, and the show. And it's quite accurate though, right? Like that, um, 
this is not answering your question, I apologize. But it, like, if you just ask people, they will tell you even if they don't think they're telling you. And it's a matter of whether or not you're listening, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think Katie's really good at this too, right? Like I've seen her in rooms of people and they're all talking, talking, talking and they're like repeating the same phrase over and over again. And they're like, this is the thing, Katie, this is the phrase. And she's like, that's nice that that's what you think you're talking about. It's not what you're talking about, but good for you, friend. Yeah. And like, that's, you know, a gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, common sense is not so common uh, these right. days. And um, yeah. I, I do know that both of you can see the correlation um, that, you know, is useful when you're having, when you're absorbing all of this information um, and then piecing it together while, as you said, you see the entire board. I think Katie, um, you know, I don't want to speak for her and she can speak to some of the CSR and ISR things. Um, but I think that Katie, you know, can, can do the same thing. So Katie, um, you know, ha having just recently left, you know, uh, the, the IC um, officially, what, what do you think uh, relative to the human centered design uh, aspect when it comes to the CSR and, and, and some of the gaps that could be improved upon in, in the federal government? Yeah, I think Maggie hit the nail on the head about how you have to talk to people and, you know, research and learning is the first step in human centered design, right? So often you go in thinking you know what the problem is, or more specifically, more often, your boss thinks he or she knows what the problem <laughs> is. And then you have to go and say, oh, that's a great starting point. Let's find out for sure. And then um, very diplomatically explain, but we found this other thing that is um, the root cause, you know, the root problem that we should probably focus on instead. And, um, and I know this is happening more and more, which is great. And so, you know, I would just make sure that whatever your, your corporate social responsibility is, whatever you're trying to do, or, um, you know, whatever um, tools you have at your disposal to solve problems, really uh, double check your assumptions at first and be humble, be humble and be curious about um, what are we trying to solve for whom, why hasn't it been solved already? Why have things failed? Uh, why will we succeed where other things have failed, basically? And then um, have the humility to test it and double check and double check and know that you're probably wrong the first few dozen times. And that's okay because you're testing really quickly and you're getting feedback and you have to really love the problem as opposed to your solution and, um, and just keep working it from there. And so um, that's certainly a challenge, especially in the federal government. I think the private sector knows that failure is part of the process. They always say, fail quickly, fail safely, it's fine. So, but in government, especially in the intelligence community, you're really worried because, you know, a failure could mean human lives, it could mean money, it could mean lost secrets. And so how do you um, work failure into the, the safe place before your tool goes live? Um, and so that's just kind of a, a mindset shift and a process um, shift that people are working their way around and it is happening. But it was a, a common discussion I had with people. I'm, I'm not saying we're gonna send people out into the field and, and fail, that is not the goal. The goal is to practice things here and, um, and really understand what they're trying to do and, uh, and feel safely. Fantastic. Uh, thank you both for taking the time uh, this afternoon, this morning. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. <laughs>